Lord Jesus, we thank you for this promise that heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will not pass away. We thank you for your eternal and powerful and sustaining word. Give us ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning. Amen. You can be seated. Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of waiting. In the parable that Jesus gives about the servants in charge, they're waiting for the master to return. And in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says that uh, we are not lacking in any gift as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting for Christ to come again. Advent means coming. It's a period of waiting. And so Advent can be a season for us to learn how to wait. Do you like waiting? Do you like waiting in line? Waiting for that job offer? Waiting for the doctor to call back with the test results? Waiting is not easy. How about waiting for God to show up? Waiting for God to show up in power in your life, in your family, in the church, in our community. Waiting for God to intervene. Maybe you felt like this guy named Carl, who Philip Yancey talked about in one of his books. Carl was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, retired, and one day he was bicycling down a dirt road in New Mexico and he had a bicycle accident. He hit a storm drain and he ended up going over the handlebars and landing on his helmet and he has a spinal cord injury and is paralyzed from the waist down. And now he's a chaplain in a a nursing facility. And Carl said to Philip Yancey, he said, you know what, it's not the physical challenges that are my greatest struggle. It's the spiritual challenge of sensing that God isn't present in this. He says, I know intellectually God is with me, but I don't sense His presence. God is hiding from me, and I'm waiting for Him to show up. I wonder if you've been there. Maybe you're there even now. How do we wait for God to come in power when He seems silent? when he seems absent. I think our lesson from Isaiah, Isaiah 64, printed on page 8 in your bulletin, this prayer that Isaiah penned for the people of Judah will help us to wait and to prayerfully wait on the Lord in those times when we feel like He's silent. This chapter, Isaiah 64, is addressed to a period of time in the history of Judah. The nation of Israel had been split between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And this was written at a time, or addressing a time, when Judah is returning from exile out of Babylon. The Persians had taken over the Babylonians. And under Cyrus the Great, the Persian ruler, he allowed some of the Jewish people to begin to return 
to Judah to return to Jerusalem. And they are literally, at this period of time, picking up the rubble. They are rebuilding this city and they're rebuilding the temple of God, the place of worship, the center of their religious life. And they've suffered a great deal. They're still suffering and they need God to show up to come in power. They need God to help them. So Isaiah gives them these words to pray and to think about. And so I want to go through this with you. Verse 1 is a cry for God to act. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God, rip the curtain that separates heaven from earth and show up powerfully. When we are in this period of waiting and we feel as if God is silent, we should still pray prayers of expectant faith for God to act even when we don't see Him acting visibly, our call is to pray with expectant faith for Him to act. And that's what Isaiah is doing. He wants God to act in such a way that it will arrest people's attention. They will know that God is on the scene. He wants God to show up like an earthquake that the mountains might quake at your presence, he says. And he uses the image of fire. Fire gets your attention, doesn't it? As when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. When we were driving home last Sunday from vacation through Illinois, as we're kind of cresting a hill, we, over in the horizon I saw this cloud of smoke next to the highway. That got my attention. You know, I was in sort of the drowsy driving zone, but when I saw this great fire ahead, it captured my attention. And it was a brushwood fire, but it was deliberately set and controlled by the farmers that got, uh, we, we, we saw that as, as we got closer to the fire. But fire catches your attention. Isaiah wants God to act in that way. Show up like an earthquake, God. Show up like fire. And he says, I, I want you to act Against your adversaries, God, and our adversaries. Make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence. (laughs) Have you ever prayed for God to show up like that against those who scoff at the idea of God? God, reveal yourself through the atheists and the scoffers and the mockers and the terrorists. Would you show up in power? A prayer for God to act. But what is the basis for Isaiah thinking that this God might actually act? That God might actually intervene in history? What is the the basis for, for Isaiah to think that this is a God who does such a thing? Well, it's because he's done it in the past. You see that where he says in verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. I think he's alluding to what happened on Mount Sinai. When God came in power, in thunder and lightning, and it was clear, it was visible that God was among his people. But the basis, friends, for us trusting that God will act is that he has 
The reason I believe God is acting now and the reason I believe that he is going to act in the future is because he's acted in the past. He's revealed himself to be a living God who's involved in history. And so I believe that he's going to act again. I believe that he is going to wind up history, culminate history with this glorious conclusion of the Son of Man coming in glory and power, ushering in a new heavens and a new earth. So I have hope for the future because of what I've seen in the past. God is a God who acts and he's revealed himself as a God of action. And so part of this biblical waiting is remembering. Part of waiting in the scripture, an integral part of waiting, especially when you feel that God is silent, is remembering the times when he wasn't silent. Remembering the times when he's shown up. And you see that in the Psalms. I mean, for example, Psalm 77, a Psalm of Asaph, it, just, it begins with, with Asaph saying, God, have you forgotten me? Or at one point in the Psalm, he says, God, have you shut up your compassion out of anger? Have you forgotten me? And then the turning point of that Psalm 77 is when he says, I will remember. I will remember your wonderful deeds of old. And then he begins to recount to himself the story of God's intervention on behalf of the people of God, the exodus, the way God showed up in power in history. I will remember. So waiting involves remembering that God has acted. We remember in the stories of Scripture how God has shown up among His people. We remember the Exodus. We remember Mount Sinai. We remember that God delivered the people out of Babylon through the Persian Empire, Cyrus the Great, allowing them to return back to their homeland. We remember, of course, as Christians, God sending His Son, Jesus, our Messiah, into the world. We remember God sending the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This is a God who's shown up time and time again. And we can look back on our own history, our individual history, many many people here, and remember how God has acted in our lives. Even this man, Carl, that I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, he said at one point, there was a season in my life when I went on a spiritual retreat for two weeks. And I gathered with other people and we prayed and we sang and we worshiped. And he said, that season in my life was a season of of knowing the presence of God in a very tangible way. And he said, maybe God gave me that experience to anchor my soul for what was to come. And I think God does that. God shows up in power, in tangible ways, answers prayer to give us an anchor for the times when he seemed silent. So we trust God to act because he's acted in the past. Now, here's the hard part. We don't get to determine when he acts. And we don't get to determine how he acts, how he shows up. Isaiah wants God to act in a particular way at a particular time, but he knows God is sovereign. God is free to act in accordance with his will. And um, in fact, here's another little note here about God's action. In fact, God has been acting all along 
in the history of the people of Judah. He's been acting in judgment. And he's been acting to deliver the people out of exile through the Persian Empire. God has been acting. Isaiah knows that. But he's, he's praying now for God to come in a certain way in power. And uh, he's praying with expectation. And that's something that we ought to emulate. And we can do. But there's something else here. As he's waiting for God to show up, he's confessing the sins of the people. And this is important for us to do. When we feel that God is silent, maybe the problem is not so much that God isn't speaking, but we are not listening. Sometimes God does withdraw His tangible presence. And sometimes God stops speaking in really clear ways. And that's called, as the spiritual writers put it, the dark night of the soul. And there's times that we go through that. And those are times of stretching our faith. Those are times of reaching for God when He's not close by. And that's a time of testing. And God does that. But sometimes the reason we're not hearing from God is we've not been listening. And Isaiah 65, you've got to read. Here's homework for you. You've got to read Isaiah 65 after hearing Isaiah 64 being preached because Isaiah 65 is God's response, His answer to this prayer. And at one point in Isaiah 65, He says, this is verse 12, When I spoke, you didn't answer. When I spoke, you didn't listen. And uh, that's the problem here, Isaiah. That's the problem with these people. They haven't Listened, And when that's the case, God will call us out of love. God will call us back to himself through confession and through repentance. So look at what Isaiah does here in, uh, in, in verse five. He, he begins to confess the sins of of his people, of the people of Judah. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. But behold, you are angry and we sin. In our sins, we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? In our sins, we've been a long time. We haven't worked righteousness. We haven't remembered you. And then listen to how he characterizes their sin, their spiritual condition. Verse 6, we've all become like one who's unclean. Our righteous deeds have become like a polluted garment. Our righteous deeds have become, the NIV says, filthy rags. Even our righteous acts, the the good things that we do, have been polluted because our hearts are not right with you. We've gone through the motions, we've done the right things, but we're not lined up with you, God. And so even our righteous deeds are like the rags that you use in the garage and the shop, and they're good for nothing after you've got the oil and the grease on them, and you have to set them off to the side. See, that's Isaiah is saying that's the root cause of our problem. God's silence and, and their suffering, it's that they've turned from God and God's trying to rouse them and get their attention. And then Isaiah confesses their spiritual apathy and their complacency in verse 7. There's no one who calls upon your name. No one who rouses himself to take hold of you. There's no one spiritually awake enough to even call on the name of the Lord. 
And there's so much cozy complacency, nobody's rousing themselves to get off the cozy, complacent spiritual couch and lay hold of God and seek His face. And so, Isaiah says, you've hidden your face from us. So that's the problem. That's Isaiah's diagnosis of the problem, of their spiritual condition. It's not listening to God, turning from God, sinning against God, doing righteous deeds that have been polluted because of an attitude of the heart and spiritual complacency that won't even arouse itself to call upon the name of the Lord. And so that's the diagnosis and then the solution is confession. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's coming clean with God on behalf of his people. God coming in power among His people is often preceded by the people confessing their sin. God coming in power in a church, in a community, in individual lives, in families is often preceded by repentance and confession. You see that in Scripture and you see that in the history of the church. The history of revivals. Now, I, I had the privilege of studying under Mike McClyme in American church history. He wrote a lot on revivalism. And one of the keys he would point out in his readings and his writings was a key common ingredient throughout history, the history of revivalism, is they were often preceded, almost always, by a wave of repentance and confession on the part of the people. In fact, it happened relatively recently, uh, at least Recent, the way we think about recent history, probably. My kids would say this is ancient history, but uh, most of us would say recent. It happened way back in 1995. Uh, one time, my kids said, one of our kids said, Dad, did they have cars when you were a kid? You know, that's <laughs> serious. Uh, but 1995, there was a revival, a renewal movement at Wheaton College. And it started with confession on a Sunday night. And people brought up black trash bags in front of the altar. And students began to come forward and fill those black trash bags with things that they felt were hindering their relationship with God. And some students brought their pornography and put it in the trash bag. And others, alcohol and drugs. And, um, and music that was not good for their soul. And some of them put in credit cards. <laughs> their parents are probably happy about that. But these were things that had be, become hindrances in the relationship with God, or idols. And that was the beginning of a renewal there. Five trash bags were filled. And night after night, during that week, people came forward to confess. And hundreds of students during that time period were called to be ministers and missionaries when they surrendered their life to God. It started with that confession. So I wonder if Advent can be a season like that for us, for our community. I wonder if this can be a season of repentance and renewal in our community. If there are things in your life, in my life, attitudes, thoughts, behaviors that are not pleasing to the Lord... We need to put them in the trash bag. We need to bring them to the altar. We can even do that today as we come forward. And we can surrender our sins to the Lord as we approach the altar. 
What things might God be calling us to put into the trash bag? What things might God be calling us to confess? Prayerlessness, complacency, unforgiveness, slander, hatred, prejudice, sexual sin, lust. What sort of things might God be calling you and me to confess? This time of waiting, of anticipating God to come, if we're going to pray prayers like that, God, would you come in power, then we have to join Isaiah in this prayer of confession too. Come in power at Church of the Resurrection, God. Come in power in this community in West County. Come in power in our family. Show up, God. And that's preceded with confession. Here's where I've turned from you. Here are the ways that we have not honored you. And we want to come clean. And we give you a space to renew us. We want to be made clean. I love the ending of this chapter because after God, after Isaiah rather, has cried out to God to come and rend the heavens and he's admitted their sin, then he appeals to the special relationship that God has with his people. He says, God, you are our father. We're your children. You are our maker. We are the clay and you're the potter. So remember not our iniquity forever, O God. For we're your people. See, he's a, there's a boldness to this prayer that comes from this relationship, this special relationship. There's a boldness for God to act, to do something, to no longer be silent, that comes from knowing that God is my Father and He cares for me. He cares for this people. He's been involved in our history and He's not going to forsake us. If we turn to Him, He will renew us and restore us because we're His children. You know, if a kid comes off the street into my house, somebody I don't even know, and, and flips on the TV and sits on my couch or goes over and into the kitchen and opens up the refrigerator or says, hey, I'd like to take your, your car out for a spin. Can I have your keys? There'd be a problem with that, right? Who are you? And what are you doing here in my house? But, uh, you know, uh, if it's one of my kids, one of my children, it's a different story. I'm their father. They're my sons, my daughters. So, you know, within reason, they have access to the TV and the refrigerator. And one day, God help us, they're going to say, Dad, can I have the keys to the car? <laughs> and if they've jumped through the appropriate hoops, you know, uh, there's, they're going to get the car keys. Why? Because they're part of the household. They're sons and daughters of the Father. They belong here. There's certain privileges and obligations that go along with the relationship. And friends, as God's children, He has brought us into His house through His Son. And we have the privilege of going to Him in boldness, in prayer, yes, from a place of confession, but also with boldness, knowing that He has acted on our behalf. And He will act again. Isaiah asked the Lord, Remember not our iniquity forever. And we know that through the cross of Christ, He's removed our iniquity. And so we can go to the Father, to the throne of grace, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4. We can approach the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence, to receive mercy and grace in the time of our need. 
I, I like what Donald Blush says in one of his books on prayer. He says, listen to this, Christian prayer is not simply driven by need, but it's kindled by grace. Christian prayer is not just simply driven by need. We do come to the Lord with our needs, but we come kindled, we come fueled to approach our Heavenly Father because of the grace that He's shown us time and again. And so as we wait for God to act, we appeal to His promises and our position as His children. That's what Isaiah is doing here. That's what Isaiah is modeling for us. And we can trust Him to act for our good in accordance with His will. So, during this season of Advent, let's make it a season of holy waiting, of prayerful waiting on the Lord. Let's make it a season of expectant prayer that God is at work in us now and we are looking for Him to act again in our community, in our church, in our world. And we are going to own up to where we've turned from Him. We're going to confess those things. And we're doing all this as positioned as his sons and daughters. Knowing that he's brought us into the household through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Help us to do that, Lord. To come to you in complete honesty during this Advent season. The world is already plunging ahead in gifts buying and scheduling parties and celebrating with Christmas carols, all that is okay and appropriate appropriate in its in its place. But we your church are called to to this holy season of waiting of waiting. And we all probably can Think of areas of our life where we need you to show up and come in power. Help us to bring these things before you, O God. And we thank you at the cross you have dealt with our fundamental root problem of separation from you. You have brought us near as sons and daughters. And so it's from that position that we pray with expectation. Call your people here to prayer and to make time for prayer during this season. In Christ's name, amen.